A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and good morning to everybody. Appreciate everyone making time on a Friday here at the start of summer. As the attendee room fills out, I'll give a little bit of background on myself and the company. My name is Brian Adams. I'm the founder and principal of Excelsior Capital. We are a commercial real estate investment platform based in Nashville, Tennessee. And we raise capital from a network of high net worth individuals, family offices, and boutique wealth management firms on a deal-by-deal basis. And we do a lot of things, but the problems we solve are giving people access to direct co-investment, providing a double-digit cash-on-cash yield annually, and then giving all the investors the same benefits that they would get from direct real estate ownership from a tax perspective. So that's who we are and what we do. This webinar series is something we started over a year ago as a way to educate our network and our peer group and provide hopefully valuable connections with managers and service providers that I think highly of. And this one is exceedingly topical. We had a very robust response. I think this is going to be an exceedingly interesting conversation amongst the panel today about the tokenization of real assets and the digitization of real assets, which we read about, I think, more and more every day. So with that, I'm going to hand it off to the experts here. We've got Ryan and Solomon from T0 and then Aaron from Earn.re. Aaron, let's start with you. Maybe if you could give a little bit of background on yourself and the firm, what you all do, and then we'll hand it off to T0 guys. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Brian, for uh, for inviting us to this panel discussion today. It's very exciting to be able to discuss the subject with your uh, audience. I'm Aaron Lohman. I'm the CEO and founder of RE. Um, what we uh, do at Earn is we're an enterprise software application that enables originators and issuers of asset-backed, specifically commercial real estate asset-backed securities and debt instruments to publish those securities and debt instruments to the blockchain, which enables them um, to have an unparalleled level of control, transparency, and an enhanced level of security that otherwise wouldn't have existed uh, prior to this technology being introduced. So through working with partners like 
T0, we're able to offer a compliant solution for secondary market liquidity on the assets that we publish. And by utilizing this software and the backend blockchain, our users can enjoy authenticity protections and and risk controls that that really are unparalleled in the industry today. Great. Thanks, Aaron. Ryan or Solomon, do you all want to maybe do a quick background on, on yourselves and the firm and we'll go from there? Uh, absolutely. So Brian, once again, thank you for hosting us. I'm Solomon Tesfai. I'm the Vice President of Business Development and Capital Markets here at T0. I've been with the firm for about three years. My background is primarily investment banking at Citigroup, um, covering industrial assets, um, whether it be M&A, IPO, private placements, and before that, venture capital and operations within a variety of roles. So at T0, in short, T0 is a regulated private asset secondary market platform that enables private assets, real estate, or any other private private companies to be able to trade in a continuous public-like manner. So you can really view us as the NASDAQ for the private markets, where we're not conducting primary issuance, but we are facilitating ongoing secondary trading for existing investors. Ryan, do you want to give your introduction? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Solomon. So my name is Ryan Zaga. I'm an Associate Director of Business Development and Capital Markets at T0, and I'm primarily focused on our real estate issuances. Prior to joining T0 about a year ago, I was Director of Acquisitions at Paramount Group, a publicly traded REIT focused on Class A and Trophy office products in New York, San Francisco, and D.C., Prior to that, I worked for a vertically integrated real estate fund operator by the name of Normandy Real Estate Partners, as well as Prudential Real Estate Investors. Okay, this is going to be this is going to be fun. But before we get into it, I think we need to define some terms for people because I know I get confused, and I've done like three calls to you all, so I, I know enough to be dangerous. But maybe let's make some definitions here. And Ryan, I think you can be helpful when we talk about a token or digital asset. What is that? Yeah, definitely. So on the uh, digital security side, this is a digital representation of an equity ownership in a particular asset, at least on the T0 side. Um, And then I know that Aaron and his team actually work with a number of debt assets as well, but it's essentially a digital representation of, you know, an equity interest that's already out there. I'm not sure if Solomon or Aaron has, you know, anything else to kind of add to that definition. Aaron, do you want to take that? Yeah, absolutely. So that digital representation of the asset is typically recorded onto a distributed ledger that's hosted by a network of independent computers. And it utilizes the power of cryptography to ensure that that digital asset is unique. It can't be spent or or used in an inappropriate way. And it assures the owner and issuer of certainty of that digital asset in terms of what it represents. It also in many cases, at least with the earn re system, represents a fractional uh, ownership stake in what we call a smart contract. And the smart contract represents, it, it essentially is a bit of code that's recorded to that blockchain ledger that represents the underlying financial instrument and the terms of that underlying financial instrument. So the purchaser and holder of that digital asset or token can be assured that the performance of that underlying instrument is digitally coded on the blockchain. And many of the aspects of that instrument are automated in terms of distributions of investor returns and recording of all activities and distributions onto that ledger. And that that ledger is what we would refer to as this utilizing this blockchain technology, correct? Correct. That's exactly what it is, a distributed ledger. And one more, I think, and then we can get into the Q&A. But Ryan Solomon, when you all 
or Aaron, whoever wants to handle it, talk about a secondary liquidity marketplace. What do you mean by that? So, so essentially, once these assets are digitized or tokenized, um, naturally, they need to actually facilitate ongoing trading in an actual marketplace. That's where T0 comes in. Once we uh, the actual capital raise is conducted, or if it's an existing ownership structure, we onboard those investors into our ecosystem, and we run an alternative trading system that's regulated by the SEC and FINRA, where we actually have order matching between our investors in our community, as well as we have institutional connectivity with a number of broker dealers, third-party broker dealers that also subscribe to our alternative trading system to facilitate actual liquidity assets. Because naturally we understand that you can't simply just digitize an asset and suddenly there'll be the liquidity there. You actually have to create a marketplace. So that's where we own three broker dealers in order to facilitate that ongoing trading. Okay, that's helpful. And as a housekeeping matter, if people have questions in the audience, use the Q&A button at the bottom. I'll try to make sure that we address every one of them in a timely fashion without interrupting the flow of this conversation. I anticipate a lot of questions, so I will try to get to them, or the panelists can see them as well if they want to hop in, if they're germane to what they're talking about. So let's let's start with Aaron. You know, I I think your definition of a token was really helpful. Digital security. What is the difference between that and Bitcoin or some of these cryptocurrencies that we hear a lot about? Yeah, great question. So mainly, let, let me explain what a cryptocurrency typically is. So it it really is a digital virtual currency that's uh, that's secured by that cryptography, making it impossible to counterfeit or double spend. Cryptocurrencies are designed to work essentially as a medium of exchange and are recorded to that distributed ledger, being the blockchain network. Typical feature of a cryptocurrency is that they're generally not issued by a central authority, a bank, or a government, and, and theoretically, they're immune to government interference or manipulation, although recently we've seen in the news instances of government intervention, such as the recuperation of the FBI of the Bitcoin ransom that was paid as a result of the colonial pipeline cyber attack. So that's the difference between a, a cryptocurrency and a digital security, where a digital security actually represents a real-world asset and performs according to the, the terms of that underlying security instrument uh, that it represents. So what does it mean then from that context that this digital security will be published to the blockchain? How do they work in tandem? Good question. So when you publish a digital security to the blockchain, you gain quite a bit of efficiency as the issuer and also as the investor, you gain quite a bit of control. So what the blockchain does is it essentially acts as a registry of ownership for who owns the the instrument. It acts as a custodian for either the loan or the equity security. And it acts as a permanent record of all transactions, transfers, distributions that take place for that digital security. And when I say it's permanent, utilizing that cryptography and that distributed network of computers, that information is published in a way where it can't be manipulated, is a, a trusted source of truth for all of those that are looking at it. And it remains consistent regardless of who is looking at that information after it's been published or any of those transactions have been logged. So th- this may be an artful, but would an analogy be what we would refer to as title insurance in kind of the the old world analog commercial real estate space? 
I think so. Um, if you were looking at it from uh, that perspective where you're recording the actual ownership of the asset, what title insurance does is it essentially ensures that that title is secure by the, the owner. What the blockchain does is essentially that, but utilizing the science of cryptography and, and the digital ledger in order to ensure that ownership or record of ownership for that particular asset. So obviously hugely beneficial in the transaction space. Let's piggyback on top of that and, and pivot to Ryan and Solomon. You know, Beyond the benefits that Aaron spelled out, what else do you see within the digitized asset space and how does it interplay with the secondary market liquidity that your platform offers? Uh, absolutely. So there's multiple advantages to digitizing or tokenizing real estate or any other private asset for that matter. Many are just quite intuitive, but they're maybe weighted differently depending on the asset and the type of owner. But some key advantages are naturally liquidity um, and trying to capture a liquidity premium because a lot of these private assets do have an illiquidity discount. Um, access to a broader set of global investors, reduction in cost of actually entry into these assets uh, to the point Aaron mentioned around fractionalization. Essentially, we on T0, we enable you know, the actual smaller batches of equity. Um, as you can think of them as shares on the public market to trade of a particular private asset. And then just automated compliance and governance. So naturally, we have a number of the other counterparties in any type of trading ecosystem, such as a transfer agent. We have a number of transfer agents integrated into our ecosystem and a lot of the other, you know, traditional counterparties at this point in the ecosystem. But so a lot of the trading dynamics do happen very in a very similar manner. But in general, the, the, those are the key advantages of allowing ongoing continuous trading of private assets. For example, in, in a fund situation, this is a very elegant way of addressing your redemption program, right? If you allow all your LPs to trade in the background as you as a GP could focus on deploying capital. That's just one example, but there's a variety of examples depending on what assets we're talking about. Ryan, do you have any other commentary on that? Yeah, I'd say, you know, if we're looking specifically at real estate, again, the main value proposition is liquidity in the secondary market. So you're essentially providing public markets-like or public REIT-like liquidity to assets that are as small as 10 to $15 million of float size on the T0 platform. And then I'll further elaborate some of the you know, real estate case studies that we're seeing currently. But really, you can be this can be executed across product types, geographies, risk spectrums, structures. So it's a really you know, interesting value proposition specifically towards real estate. And as Solomon noted, we're working with a wide variety of funds and non-traded REITs where they see this as a very elegant solution to redemption provisions, handling distributions, and really giving um, individual owners whole period flexibility and the ability to kind of customize their own destiny versus being tied to a specific fund life, asset cycle, and or non-traded read redemption provision. So I think we all see this trend line within the finance space of the fractionalization of ownership of real assets. And that's been playing out in real time over the last 6, 12 months. What are you all seeing today in your pipeline? Who's actually adopting this technology? What product type, what sponsor type, and, and what are the size ranges? What are we talking about in terms of volume today? Ryan, do you want to address that? Yeah, definitely. I could take a stab at least on the uh, T0 pipeline, and I'm sure Aaron's seeing a whole wide variety of deals as well. But right now, we're dealing with about 150 issuers who are in various stages of onboarding onto our platform. These issuers are both domestic and international. Some of these groups have identified an asset or company that we're currently uh, diligencing 
while others are out raising capital, uh, real estate still remains our dominant asset class with roughly 30% of the pipeline. This is closely followed by a variety of funds, some of which are real estate related, others are just a variety of different strategies. And then after that, we're working with a wide variety of private companies. These private companies include manufacturing, healthcare, industrials, technology companies. And then after that, we're actually speaking to a number of NASDAQ OTC listed companies who are looking to potentially come onto our venue as well, given that we have this streamlined investor onboarding process and investor um, interface. So, you know, there's really a wide, wide variety of issuer types. And then, you know, I could certainly kind of delve into the, you know, different real estate use cases later on in this discussion as well. Uh, Solomon, do you have anything to add to our pipeline? If not, we could also hand it over to um, Aaron on what he's seeing. Well, one quick comment that I saw in the Q&A. Uh, these are, all these are for the most part private assets. So they've raised capital through private placements historically. And so we're not operating any gray area here from a regulatory perspective. We're resting upon the same private placement regulatory framework that's been around before this technology was enabled, enabling uh, ongoing trading. So whether it's, uh, you know, Reg D 506 c private placement that was executed over a year ago. So now it's freely tradable under Rule 144 amongst retail investors, or whether we're facilitating um, a Reg A plus up to 75 million, enabling that to trade amongst retail investors, no lockup period. All these are on, uh, resting upon existing regulatory framework within private placements. So I just want to clarify that point. Aaron, um, you want to opine on that? Yeah, we're seeing uh, similar type usage as Ryan had described. So on our platform, we're seeing fund managers and investment managers digitizing their funds and digitizing the subscription process, utilizing the blockchain. We're also seeing single asset issuances where uh, a sponsor uh, of a commercial real estate project would raise equity uh, or debt capital for their uh, project using our platform in various forms. And, and we're also talking to originators of debt where they're digitizing those loans and enabling a much more streamlined process for originating those loans and then ultimately transferring those loans to other qualified purchasers after they've been originated on the blockchain. So that's, that's typically uh, the use cases that, that we're seeing being focused on commercial real estate here in the United States. All of it, however, according to you know, what, what Ryan and Solomon were talking about, though, is heavily dependent on compliance and regulatory uh, restrictions. So what we've done is we've built a system that really helps um, automate the workflows of these issuances and keep these issuers and originators within regulatory compliance, ensuring that everything is done according to the rules. But you don't need to transact using crypto, true or false, cryptocurrencies. True. That's true. So our system is based purely on U.S. dollars uh, and fiat currency. We have a partnership with Wilmington Trust, a division of M&T Bank, uh, that handles all of the, uh, the custody of the currencies and distribution of those currencies through our, our uh, platform. Yes, and it is worth mentioning that no broker dealer at this point in time in the U.S. can actually hold crypto or stablecoin. On the T0 side, we are going to be converging our digital security side of the business. So the private asset secondary market platform with our crypto business, which is currently bifurcated from uh, that business um, because we have received regulatory guidance in terms of uh, enabling them to converge and then having different basically piping, if you will, behind the scenes. Um, so someone will be able to basically diversify from let's say Bitcoin into private real estate on our platform in a very seamless manner. And uh, that right now we're aiming for the, basically the end of third quarter for that. 
Um, but, but to your point, you do not need to transact in crypto on the platform. So along those lines, if you were, you know, a, a potential buyer investor on the secondary marketplace, what type of, of diligence can you expect today? And is it real-time pricing or how does the valuation work? Yeah, yes. So in, in general, before we onboard an asset or even before we engage with um, a potential issuer, we do formal business, legal, and reputational due diligence on an asset. Um, so most of the individuals on the business side have backgrounds similar to myself and Ryan. And then naturally, we have traditional securities lawyers that are also doing due diligence on any particular asset. And then from a disclosure perspective, naturally, since we're facilitating public life continuous um, trading, there has to be disclosure. So when an asset first comes on the platform, there is a basically information package that they have to provide the market. And then we require semi-annual and annual disclosure. And naturally, these are not as burdensome as being public uh, with 10Ks, 10Qs, and so forth. Um, it's you know, unaudited to financials and basic information about risk profile management of the business, which you can see that St. Regis Aspen Resort actually is providing on our platform. This is very similar to what most likely that private assets already providing their limited partners to begin with, maybe be somewhat diluted from that. For St. Regis Aspen Resort, they were already providing monthly disclosure, so they continue to do so on our platform. And they provide a little bit more robust disclosure on a semi-annual and annual basis. Um, but it's a very, very nice option for one, if, whether it's single assets like Aaron mentioned, you know, individual building that may not be appropriate to go public, or if it's an interim step before an entity goes public, or if they plan on saying private long-term um, or into perpetuity. So this is, but the actual lift, if you will, to access ongoing trading is much lower than otherwise if you enter the public markets. And, and a follow-up there, and I'm going to throw some alphabet soup at you. And if Sophie doesn't understand, I'm happy to explain it. But what about OFAC, KYC, AMA, AML issues, both from the, the sell side, the buy side, and is you all acting as the intermediary platform here? Yes. So at least on the secondary trading perspective, naturally, we own three broker dealers, two of which we actually acquired, and then we just enhanced the technology and so forth. So naturally, they're all basically regulated by SEC and FINRA. So for example, our retail broker dealer, when we onboard investors, they naturally go through AML, KYC to answer our trading ecosystem, You know, just like any, any broker dealer has to conduct that exercise. Um, and then once they're in our in our ecosystem, if there's a certain security that's only eligible to accredited investors, we do own Verify Investor, which is an accreditation service that can conduct that. So all the traditional checks and balances you'd expect in any kind of broker dealer environment, whether you're trading on Schwab, E-Trade, or Robinhood, would you go through the same exact experience in our in our ecosystem? And this is a, a kind of a, a big hairy question, but how does it work from the debt perspective, right? If you're a sponsor and you've got CMBS, LifeCo, even traditional bank debt on this, are there transfer provisions in place? I mean, what are the hurdles that you have to jump over there to actually effectuate some of these transactions if you're swapping out the equity holders? So the nice thing about digital securities, you literally digitize any kind of guardrails into the security itself. So we're working with a number of real estate issuers where they have covenants where they can't have an, a specific investor accumulate above 10% without the creditors um, actually approving that. So what we could do is we could put an actual guardrail in place that nobody in the trading ecosystem can actually go above 8%, for example. And that's enforced on a continuous basis. Or um, naturally, any kind of OFAC country will not see the ticker. Um, they won't be able to even enter our ecosystem. Or, But if they want to go beyond that and say, I don't want these other geographies to be able to even trade my ticker, we can naturally facilitate that. So there's a very, very high degree of tailored liquidity that we could provide 
any particular issuer that's trying to come onto the platform that aligns with the covenants. And that's part of our due diligence as well. We're naturally checking any of the, the debt covenants that are on any particular asset, whether it's uh, industrial asset or whether it's real estate asset or whatever the case may be. So um, we can make sure we stay within uh, compliance, both from a trading perspective, but also from any of these other third parties, whether it be debt or whatnot. And we also intend on supporting private debt trading on the platform first half of next year. Currently, we're focused on equity at this point, but um, it's, that's going to be a very exciting development as well. Aaron, a follow-up question there, because I know you you are focused on equity and debt. You know, for these loans or these debt instruments that are that are being facilitated through your platform, who is the servicer there? Who's overseeing that actual loan itself? Yeah, great question. So for these commercial loans, Earn is actually acting as the servicer through the smart contracts and the automation that's provided behind the scenes on the blockchain. So in a very transparent manner, we know exactly who the owner of, of the loan is and where the, the resulting payments need to be routed to. And through our partnership, again, with Wilmington Trust, those payments are drafted from the borrower and distributed according to who currently owns that loan on the system. So it's it's easily transferred and the the servicing is behind the scenes moving that money and, and servicing according to the terms of the loan. And a question for both of you, do you there are, are there qualifications? I mean, I know we have the regulatory issues, but how does how do you become a buyer or investor on this platform? Do you have to get on your distribution list? Do they have to reach out? I mean, what does that look like if people are interested in investing in some of these secondary opportunities or just want to you know get on the platform itself. Aaron, do you want to start then we'll go to the T0? Yeah. So so from Earn's perspective, we've built our system system as an invitation-based system. So the the lenders will essentially invite their borrowers to complete the loan file and populate the loan file according to what is uh, needed in order to move through to the funding process. All of that information that's provided by the borrower in the instance of a loan is permanently logged on the blockchain in a secure fashion so that qualifying purchaser after the fact can also conduct due diligence on the history of that loan and purchase it in a, in a confident manner. Similarly to equity securities, the issuers are inviting their uh, investors to the data room, the cryptographically authenticated data room that they've populated with all of the securities documents and information about the issuance, giving the investors the ability to conduct that due diligence and then electronically subscribe directly through the platform. Ryan Solomon, you want to comment kind of same question there for you all? Well, from a T0 perspective, it just depends on how the offering was conducted. Um, so we basically are, are able to, anyone can create an account on T0, uh, retail or accredited, but whether you could see a specific ticker depends on how that specific private placement was conducted um, and whether the securities are seasoned or if there's a, a lockup period applicable to them. So in the case of St. Regis Aspen Resort, they did a $20 million private placement, Reg D506C, in 2018. So they did, sold that to only accredited investors. Then they came to our platform, and that was sold to roughly a dozen accredited investors with a minimum of $100,000 equity checks. And then they came to us middle of last year, looking to give those investors liquidity optionality. The, the securities were already seasoned under Rule 144, so they were freely tradable amongst retail investors. And then they, they had a third-party appraisal pre-COVID by JLL. And so they came to us and said each digital security, so each share essentially was going to be worth $1.25. And so when it entered our ecosystem for trading, everybody could see the ticker given the fact that it was seasoned. And now they have over 500 investors on that particular portion of the cap table. 
Um, so it really was a great case study in terms of democratization of access to that particular asset. Can you maybe explain what seasoned means? Absolutely. So when I say seasoned, for example, in a, a, if it is a rule, uh, sorry, a Reg D 506C private placement, after a year, so at the, during the primary issuance, you only get to sell to accredited investors. After a year, under Rule 144, basically retail investors can now participate and buy that particular security that they were not able to buy for that one-year period, a seasoning period, if you will. And that's that's what I'm referring to when I say it's seasoned. It's just a Reg D 506 has to wait one year before retail investors can actually purchase that particular security. If an issuer did a Reg A+, for example, a different type of private offering, it would basically be a lot more disclosure involved in it. But regardless, retail investors would be able to participate at the primary as well as immediately at the secondary with no lockup period. So really, it just depends on what type of private placement any issuer conducts, dictates who and when any retail investors can actually access that investment. And does the sponsor general partner have to consent to this new investor coming in? Are they given details and information? How does it work from that perspective? So regarding the, the trading dynamics, since we're offering continuous trading, we can't have every single investor be approved by the GP. The, the GP could definitely set up guardrails in place, um, or they could simply say, I don't want retail investors to come on to my cap table. We can definitely facilitate that if they're not trying to maximize liquidity. But the transfer restrictions need to be removed. So it is actually conducive for secondary trading. Um, so if it is an existing asset with an existing ownership structure that has transfer restrictions, that would need to be amended out. And then if it's a new capital raise and they're simply going to intend on having a trade afterward, they just wouldn't have transfer restrictions in their actual offering documents or their PPM on the, on the get-go. But they can't be approved on an individual investor basis because it's just not conducive for secondary trading at that point. And big picture, I mean, we've seen this rise in you know, direct listings probably a year plus ago. People started circumventing the traditional IPO route. And obviously... SPACs have become de rigueur over the last 12 months. Do you see this as another avenue eventually to provide you know, ultimate liquidity so, to some of these traditionally illiquid assets? Absolutely. This is definitely really, there's a huge delta between being private and public. And since 1996, you know, IPOs have gone down over 50%. Um, we do see this re- recent uptick when SPACs and SPACs you know, oftentimes come and go. But setting those aside, Really, this is a great way for one, a broader set of assets to be able to trade on a continuous basis. But still, you're not going to have an individual building go public for the most part, usually, uh, or the whole middle market is typically neglected. Um, or certain assets just don't, it doesn't make sense for them to go through that ongoing cost associated with being public. Um, so there is this a significant portion in between that where this is a very, very uh, appropriate venue for offering long-term investors access to liquidity and also broadening the pool and democratizing access to a broader set of investors that have access to more elusive assets. But you know, this is also just in, at its core, reducing friction in, in terms of owners being able to transfer ownership between one another. So we even have issuers that are not looking to trade broadly. They just want us to create a sandbox to allow their existing LPs to trade amongst each other. Because if I own a minority stake in an asset and I try to sell it, I have to get counsel, I have to get a broker, I have to get an appraisal. It's a lot of friction and most likely I'll sell it at a discount to NAV. And so this is a great solution in order to facilitate this frictionless transfer of value on the platform. Ryan, did I miss anything on that? 
Yeah, you know, I'll just add to that frictionless aspect. So we're speaking to a lot of real estate owner operators, you know, whether or not they're private owner operators and or larger institutional groups where they see this as like an excellent solution for ownership, of, I would say capital structures where they have a portion of the LPs that want to go out and sell an asset where or, you know, close a fund, whatever it may be. And then you have a portion of the cap table that wants to stay in this asset and continue the value creation. This is a good way where you could really appease both sets of LPs, right? So the LPs that might want to trade out of an asset, you know, that could be tokenized. They could potentially sell their interest in the secondary market. Whereas if you're an LP that wants to stay in the cap table, continue with the value creation, you could essentially, you know, hold on to your interest. And, you know, we're seeing that, you know, really across a lot of our assets and a lot of the sponsors that we're speaking to. So it's a good way to kind of appease both sets of investors and really, as an operator, continue your value creation. And I'm hesitant to even ask, but what is the addressable, total addressable market for something like this versus where do you see adoption today in your current pipelines? Aaron, did you want to go first? Yeah, uh, data that we have at Earn estimates that the total addressable market, at least in the United States, for debt and equity securities focused on commercial real estate is about $9.7 trillion. So it's a massive number. It's a massive market. Where we're seeing early adoption at Earn is at the enterprise level. So these are larger organizations that are issuing many securities, many loans on an annualized basis. And they're really looking to this software and technology as an efficiency tool that allows them to scale the operation, reduce risk, and efficiently address the growth that they're experiencing without investing too much in the back office of, of their existing operation. And then from the T0 perspective, it's very, very difficult to quantify. You know, There's two times more capital that gets deployed in the private space versus the public space. The public space has, you know, 330 times more liquidity. Um, so there's a massive inefficiency gap. But the reason why it's also hard to quantify is we're seeing a wide range of applications, whether it be, you know, real estate, whether it be private companies in general, whether in industrials, healthcare, tech, and also just esoteric assets where we're seeing even art and collectibles put into escrow, and then they're doing a private placement off of that. And then they intend on having that trade on our platform. So that's why it's very, very difficult. But it's a very, very massive opportunity within each of these sectors. Yeah, the only thing, other thing that I'd add is that we have a number of uh, sponsors who are actually looking to take revenue streams as well, right? Whether or not it's associated with copyrights, IP, or you know other types of revenue streams, and essentially tokenize that and have it trade. So yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting um, you know platform and thesis that really stands beyond just hard assets and private companies to a really wide set of uh, potential asset classes. Yeah, I mean. It- the the market opportunity is hard to fathom, frankly, when you start really going down the rabbit hole on this. So we have a, a bunch of questions. We're going to try to maybe for the remainder of the time we have roughly 15, 20 minutes, do a little bit of an extended lightning round because I want to make sure we try to address these. And I will say from a housekeeping perspective, this will be recorded. We will put it up on YouTube and as well as the website. So you'll be able to access it and review it. And then obviously afterwards, if you want to speak with any of the panelists directly, I'm happy to facilitate introductions and we'll also be providing content information. So we don't get to your question or if you want to talk offline, obviously happy to hook you up with Ryan and Aaron and Solomon. And so th- this one from, from George, I think it is interesting. You know, tokens represent, you know, a form of fractionalized ownership, but I guess 
to get in a little bit more of the details itself, how does that token actually represent the ownership of the asset in terms of title, shares? I think this is more a line of how does it interact with the blockchain itself and how do you track all of this maybe as the end user or the investor coming into an existing asset? So I can take uh, the first crack at that one. At Earn, we're focused purely on the digitization of the financial instruments. So these are the, the debt instruments or the equity instruments. And in the issuance documents, and we offer a, a full library of templates for these issuance documents as well that have been vetted um, and approved from the regulatory perspective. But in the issuance documents, they do recognize the digital units, they do recognize the blockchain, and it is tied to the actual uh, instrument itself. So if you're issuing equity, it would be recognized in your private placement memorandum, in your operating agreement terms, as well as in the, the subscription agreement uh, that you are presenting to your investors. So everybody is clear that the token does represent the unit of ownership in that issuance. And then that issuance is tied to the actual, in, in the case of equity, to the SPV that owns the uh, asset or is bringing the asset to market. And in the case of debt, it's tied to that mortgage that is recorded in the local county and the lien is perfected against the actual asset itself. And once that starts trading on T0, we do require a transfer agent to be um, involved in the process. So as it trades live and on a continuous basis, the transfer agent is updating the books and records as well um, so that this actually is updated on a real-time basis in terms of the ownership structure and whatever that ownership structure reflects as the underlying asset or whether it's royalty stream equity and so forth. So a couple of following questions there. One, from the diligence perspective, you know, we as a sponsor obviously provide mounds of data information and diligence to our potential investors. Is, is that diligence process dictated by the underlying legal agreements in terms of reps, warranties, disclosures, et cetera? What could a buyer envision as seeing if they're considering making an investment into a certain fund or asset, et cetera? So on the EARN platform, we're really focused on the primary issuance, and we've built tools for that due diligence into the system, uh, specifically a data room that's cryptographically authenticated and tied to the blockchain to ensure that the uh, data that is being presented to the investor is authentic, hasn't been manipulated or changed at any point, and continues to stay live throughout the life cycle of that instrument after it's been issued. So anybody who holds a token or is interested in purchasing uh, a token or a unit in that issuance has full access to that data room and can dive deeply into the information that's being uh, presented by the sponsor. And on the T0 side, we're 100% focused on the secondary trading side. So we basically, on the before we onboard an asset naturally, we go through our business legal and reputational due diligence. And then on it, we, we require ongoing, ongoing disclosure that I mentioned earlier, um, semi-annual or annual disclosure that's provided to all prospective investors if they are looking to make an investment in that particular asset. So along those lines, how how are folks handling the investor relations component of this? There's there's obviously been huge developments in the prop deck space. We use you know Juniper Square and a lot of other things that have really streamlined our investor relations and reporting and allowed us to offer lower minimums and, and larger kind of quantity of investors. How are you seeing sponsors and fund managers handling that component of this transaction? So on the secondary trading side, the, the transfer agent, if you have just one-off basically communications to your investor you're looking to make, the transfer agent, whether it's a computer share that's integrated in our ecosystem or Vitalo or whatever the case may be, are able to basically um, 
put out those communications to whatever investors have that particular asset at that point in time. Um, and then on our platform, um, you'll actually see the disclosures I mentioned earlier um, that are always available. But if there is any kind of, whether it's disbursements of dividends in USD or whether it's any type of communication that is done through the transfer agent. And what is the fees, cost? How does that work here? I know every offering is probably a little bit different, but there must be some associated costs with these type of transactions and platforms, right? Aaron, did you want to go first? Yeah. From Earn's perspective, the fees really are, are subscription-based fees based on the amount of volume that an issuer is publishing to the platform using the, the Earn system or publishing to the blockchain using the Earn platform. And so it, it really is based on, on volume and closed transaction uh, volume. And, and so it's a small percentage of those fees. Ryan, do you want to cover ours? Yeah, definitely. And then on the uh, T0 side, it really is a fixed rate fee. So um, whether or not a issuer decides to use a third-party tokenization platform, such as Aaron's group, or if we do the tokenization in-house, there's an associated fee with that. You know, Generally, we're charging $100,000 to $150,000 if we do the tokenization in-house. In addition, year one onboarding fees are $50,000. Year two onward compliance fees are $20,000 annually. And then the uh, issuer would just have to engage with a transfer agent. Solomon mentioned computer share. Computer share generally charges ten to fifteen thousand dollars annually, but that's certainly something we could, you know, discuss overall pricing on a case by case basis. And then we also just to know we have a number of issuers who happen to be serial issuers where they're looking to take one existing fund asset property, essentially digitize that, enable trading, and then they're going to look to replicate that process. So you know, with these serial issuers, there is you know, level of flexibility on pricing. Yeah. So once Aaron tokenizes and once the asset comes to our platform, our trading is very predictable in terms of the fees. So whether you're doing a hundred million dollar you know market cap, which we have, or whether we, you're doing a ten million dollar market cap, the pricing is the same in terms of you know the actual annual fee because we do do annual compliance checks on these assets. So that's that twenty thousand annual fee that Ryan was mentioning. Okay. Thanks for addressing that. I'm running through some of these uh, questions here. What does this look like from the international perspective? Are you know foreign nationals allowed to participate on these platforms today? I'm sure it's a dynamic space depending on region and geography. What's the current state of play there? Yes. Yeah, so at least in terms of the T0 pipeline, almost half of our pipeline is overseas. So we, this is truly a, a global you know, movement, if you will, um, and we're, we're recognized as a global leader in the space. Uh, we do have 95% of the global liquidity in the space. So right now, that's an indicator of how young this ecosystem is. But that being said, oftentimes we have issuers that are overseas that may set up SPVs in the Caymans and they intend on having an SPV trade, for example. In terms of onboarding investors, we support between 35 to 40 geographies. And if an asset has a specific geography we don't support at this current time, as long as they give us foresight, we'll go through the compliance and legal exercise to support that particular geography. So it truly is a global pipeline, if you will. And it's operating 24-7 as well? Is this kind of, you know, it never shuts down? There's, there's constantly trading or what's the marketplace look like? So right now we have a little bit extended market hours from similar to the, the public market hours, um, but we are going to be moving to 24-7 trading. But uh, naturally, we're just doing an incremental steps. So we're first going to move towards 24-7 order input, and then we're going to be moving towards uh, 24-7 trading. But right now it's extended market hours. Aaron, do you want to comment on that? 
Yeah, uh, from Earn's perspective, right now we're focused on issuances originated in the United States. However, based on the exemptions filed for those security issuances, foreign investors can participate. And we do have some some new initiatives that are coming about in the near future in Southeast Asia as well as the Australian market for issuers and sponsors there to start digitizing their issuances in those markets. So we've got a question here. Can Maybe one of you talk through a little bit the difference between a token in the sense that you're using the term versus a non-fungible token that that we've seen in the headlines recently, the NFT kind of theme. Andrew, do you want to first take the first crack at that? Yeah. So I think the, the tokens that we are creating at Earn could be considered a non-fungible token. Each issuance is unique. The tokens that are created are unique to that sponsor's issuance. However, if it is fractionalized, then each one of those tokens within that issuance is technically fungible with the other tokens within that pool. But compared to the other tokens on the Earn platform, it is non-fungible and, and very unique to the to the actual project itself. And then on the T0 side, all we deal with is security. So if it's as long as it's maybe an NFT security, because we do think there is a subset, a decent sized subset of these NFTs that are going to be classified as securities, we could support that asset from a trading perspective. All right, running through some of these questions here. This one's pretty technical. <laughs> For how does it work from an accounting perspective? If it was an investor buying debt or equity in a, in a tokenized asset, and actually this is a good question. Somebody asked me this, and this may interplay here. You know, how is that characterized? And then how does the depreciation work? If on a that, and this might be too esoteric, but you know, if you own an asset for ten years, you have accelerated depreciation in year one, and you as the investor are buying at year two or three. How does that impact them from a tax perspective? Ryan, I know you've done some work on a lot of the issues on K-1s and so forth. You want to talk about that? Exactly, yeah. So we're speaking to a number of uh, counterparties who could facilitate the creation of these K-1s really across a very deep potential cap table. Given that you're going to have a number of investors who might be in partial years, and then you could potentially have you know hundreds, if not thousands, of individual investors through a calendar year. That's something that is certain. Uh, so we're having ongoing discussions with other third parties who you know, could provide some horsepower to some of these private owner operators who are used to facilitating schedule K-1s for you know, dozens, if not you know, ten, you know, tens, if not dozens of individual investors within an existing investment. We're kind of going beyond that and figuring out what the pathway forward would be. So there's a number of third parties who are able to kind of facilitate that process. I'm not going to speak to the tax ramifications specifically, given that it's going to really depend on an uh, investor by investor, domicile by domicile, and also structure by structure basis. But, um, you know, at least with the K-1s, that's something that, you know, we're speaking to a number of counterparties to, you know, help facilitate that. Um, and then uh, we have a number of existing investments that are in like a corporation structure so that they're uh, essentially filing uh, 1099s. So that's something that, you know, is sort of very familiar to computer share and some of the other transfer agents within the ecosystem. Yes, yeah, so that's the last point that the transfer agent is the one that will disperse those K-1s or those 1099s to the respective investors. And Solomon, maybe a question for you, since you commented on the international nature of your investor base or user base, how are, do you know how they're handling FERPTA and some of these other kind of 
are these considered domestic U.S. investments, I assume, correct? So depending on where the asset's domiciled, there may be more than one regulatory um, framework, right? So definitely U.S., absolutely, because we're, we're regulated by SEC and FINRA. Then we have some structures where the asset may be in the UAE, um, but then they're setting up an SPV in the Caymans. And so that we go, we, typically what we'll do is we'll go on the, on the line with both their uh, UAE council, their Cayman council, and then they have a U.S. council. So some of the large organizations working with that have that type of structure. There is multiple geographies that they're subject to, given the nature of the, the transaction. But they're used to setting up their, their, their actual assets in that manner anyway to access U.S. investment. So it's pretty streamlined from that perspective. It's really just the, some of the nuances that in terms of amending some of their PPMs related to the trading dynamics. But they're already used to being regulated by multiple jurisdictions when they set up any of these ask these primary issuances, if you will. Got it. And there's a question from Patrick, and and I think you already addressed this, but it's an interesting one. If additional equity is needed at the deal level, is there an issue with an exiting investor having rights to or actually funding, call it a capital call, as compared to you know what would typically be the case in in a common equity you know transaction? I assume they're getting at kind of. They're still regulated by the underlying prospectus PPM operating agreement, et cetera, correct? That is correct. And then and keep in mind, when even when an asset, a private asset trades on T0, even if the asset gets bought, similar to a public company that got bought by a private equity firm and it got delisted and the disbursement would go out as a one-time dividend to those shareholders, this doesn't prohibit you from selling the asset and any complications along those lines. Or if you decide to go public, you can stay on our platform because we can also facilitate trading of public assets. We do have one already on the platform, Overstock Preferred. But this doesn't prohibit you. It all, it all does give you a little bit more flexibility. But everything is still subject to the underlying offering document once it is trading. So I, I think that covers it in terms of some of these specific questions. And again, I don't want to get too niche here, but if you have, we're happy to facilitate introductions and follow-ups. Maybe taking a step back, there's a lot going on in this space. Where do you think, you know, if an individual wanted to invest into this world and participate in this burgeoning kind of industry, what are your like what are your thoughts here about opportunity, best ideas, how to participate in what I see as just this growing industry? Aaron, you want to maybe take a shot at going first? Yeah, I think if an individual wanted to to start investing digitally, you could explore platforms like Earn. I think for a retail investor, T0 may be a wonderful place to start because these investments, as Solomon already stated, have been seasoned. They are ready for trade, and it gives you a lot of flexibility. With the Earn system, however, you could sign up for an investment account and peruse the, the various offerings on the platform. Again, we are focused on mainly the primary issuances. So you would be one of the first to onboard into these issuances as an investor with Earn. With T0, you do have the flexibility of the trading and secondary market for the seasoned, uh, seasoned securities. And from you know, at least my perspective, I would say that create a T0 markets account and then go on and look through the, just the user experience. You'll find that it's very intuitive. It's as if you're trading on Schwab or E-Trade or any of these other platforms. Everything that's blockchain related has been abstracted out. So it's very, very easy to navigate around the platform. And as we onboard more assets, it just creates more opportunities to invest in those particular private assets. And then, you know, as this kind of small plug, 
you know, we are doing a strategic capital raise. We have Guggenheim that's leading our capital raise right now. So if you are interested in something along those lines, we can also provide you an introduction to our, our investment bankers as well. And what are you all seeing from the perspective of kind of the wirehouse bulge bracket players? Are are they moving too slow to adopt these? Are they are they too cumbersome from a regulatory perspective and their different lines of business? I'm curious to to hear your thoughts on the ground of what's going on with some of the kind of brand name Wall Street groups. So at least on the T zero side, we've formed a lot of relationships with you know, middle market investment banks where they they view this as based on the deal size, we're seeding roughly between 25 million equity floats to maybe you know high 100 million equity floats. They really view this as a very big opportunity for them as they conduct private placements. They view this by giving investors line of sight to liquidity optionality. They view this as a catalyst by all means for those capital capital raises. On the bulge bracket side, we are in talks with a number of large bulge brackets. Right now, the deal size isn't necessarily conducive for them, but they are looking at this as a, more of a long-term, they want to have a seat at the table type of relationship. And I really think that you know a lot of them have highlighted even using this kind of platform internally, where they may have real estate funds internally, where they have LPs experiencing friction when they try to trade in and out and allowing more of like a sandbox environment to allow those LPs to move amongst each other um, in terms of transferring value amongst each other within their own environment, if you will. Ryan, I don't know if you have any other comments on that. Yeah, and just to add to that, when we're looking in the uh, real estate sector specifically, we're dealing with some, you know, larger, more marquee type of real estate firms that are looking at this as a way to kind of diversify their potential pool of investors on the primary side. Given that, as Aaron alluded to, they could cut smaller, you know, check sizes from an individual investor standpoint, given that these investors will have foresight into secondary market liquidity. So it really essentially broadens access to their investor base. And then, you know, a lot of these existing investors, a lot of these existing institutional um, investors have a number of legacy assets, funds that this might be a suitable way to to take the existing uh, asset fund and essentially digitize it and then enable trading for their existing pool of LPs. Aaron, same question for you. What are you seeing in terms of your space on the, on the primary issuer side? I, I may need you to clarify that question a little bit more for me in terms of it, primary issuers. Yeah. In, in terms of, are there, are there, you know, other big kind of large asset management, private equity kind of wall street profile groups that are, considering getting into this space or is it just too complicated and you're able to really carve out a nice nice kind of niche service for some of these groups that want to you know participate in the the initial tokenization of their assets I don't think that it's too complicated for the larger issuers in fact I think that they're very well aware of the technology and the potential of the blockchain and in fact we're seeing much of our traction in exactly that space. It is our goal to move into the the middle of the market as well. But we do feel that at the at the higher end of the market, the larger issuers tend to be very sophisticated. They do have innovation departments that are dedicated to this particular task right now. And they're they're looking very keenly at digitizing their activities and using the blockchain to do it. Well, we're bumping up against the hour mark. I'm going to be mindful of everyone's time. I want to thank Ryan, Aaron, and Solomon for joining us. This was, as I said in the pre-call, the most registration uh, activity we've ever received. We've been doing this for a year. So obviously very topical, top of mind for every investor. And I think 
you know, we might need to do a follow-up here in a couple of months to see where things are moving because it's fascinating and I think it's only going to continue to grow. So I want to thank all of you for the time. And again, we'll be providing a recording and I'm always happy to facilitate introductions if folks want to follow up directly with any of the panelists. I want to thank you all for the time. I hope you guys have a great weekend and wherever you are, the weather is good. Aaron, you get the prize for most exotic place we've ever done a webinar from. You are in Bucharest right now. So enjoy your time there. Safe travels home. And we'll see you all soon. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.